children say the most unexpected things about God, especially at Christmas. Uh, One Christmas when the nativity story was being told, it came to no room at the inn, and one child blurted out, I blame Joseph, he should have booked. (laughs) I don't know what Christmas means to you, hearing, for example, those vox pops from Clapham Junction round here. I don't know if you believe, as I once did, that Christianity is a fairy story or just a moral code, or a calendar of rituals, or a list of do's and don'ts. These weeks through Christmas, we're going beyond the nativity story to what the Christian faith actually claims to be. We're doing it with the help of the prologue to John's Gospel just read to us. There isn't time, even over four weeks, to defend all these claims, but there is time to sketch them. And I want to encourage you, whether you'd call yourself a Christian or not, to come again or listen on our website to some of the others in this series. Explore them over time. John's prologue is like the overture at the beginning of a symphony. Many of the musical phrases are played at the outset to resonate throughout the rest of the symphony. And so in the prologue, themes are set out to be developed in the ministry of Jesus. Words and ideas cascade, birth and life, light and darkness, the word and the world, receiving and believing children, flesh, grace, truth, glory. They burst one after another like a firework display. In a few short sentences, they're introduced to be revisited in the story of Jesus. Well, tonight we begin with two of the prologue's extraordinary claims. And the first is this, in the beginning was the word. John starts off apparently impersonally, the word literally the logic behind the universe, the reason behind all existence. He's also referring to the first words of the whole Bible, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. So he's signaling that he's writing about a new beginning and a new creation, as big as the Big Bang in the creation of the universe. He goes on, and the word was was with God, literally towards God, which implies separate from God, but in intimate relationship with God. At the same time, the word was God. Nothing less than God himself. The word he's talking about was with God in the beginning, that is in the creation of the universe, through him, so the word we're talking about is a person, all things were made, and without him nothing was made that has been made. Now, let me tell you, if you didn't know this already, the writer of those words, John, was a teenage peasant fisherman until he had an encounter that changed his life. He became a wordsmith unparalleled in human literature. In a masterstroke of verbal dexterity, he utters half a dozen meanings in a few sentences to describe the man who changed his life. I don't know if you realize how dramatic that is. It would be as if the scaffolder, I've got nothing against scaffolders, But the scaffolder working in your road composed something more profound than Shakespeare. That in itself needs some explanation. The second sentence follows from the first. In him was life. 
It used to be believed that life began in a spontaneous photochemical reaction somewhere on planet Earth. Darwin, for example, wrote, in some little pond with all sorts of ammonia and phosphoric acid, salts, light, heat, and electricity. He proposed this combustible mixture produced a chemical reaction that spawned the first simple life cell. And from that life form, all life as we know it has developed. We now know from science that view will not do. The very first simplest life cell needed two components, neither of which could live without the other, a complex protein and the DNA code to control it. Those two are so complex that the Earth isn't old enough for these two to have happened by mere chance. Hence, other scientists have suggested that life began somewhere else in the universe, and a floating plasma one day drifted down to Earth. The truth is, no scientist knows. Science isn't much nearer understanding where life came from than it ever was. And the reason? Because in him was life. And twice in this gospel, Jesus Christ gave himself the title, I am the life. He claims to be the source of all inorganic matter. John has already said that. Through him, all things were made. But now he's saying something deeper. In him was life. The physical life of all organic species. So that whether I know it or not, I owe my life not just to my parents and a natural biological process, but to Jesus Christ. All plants and animals, and they aren't conscious of it, owe their lives to Jesus Christ. What a view this is. A cosmic Christ. But in a particular and special sense, the life that is in Jesus becomes something more to mankind than the life of Jesus is to a flower or a dog. The life that was in him, John says, to mankind becomes light. In him was life, and the light, the life was the light of all mankind. He may be referring to the life in us, our essential being made in the image of God. Or he may be referring to the life in the natural world, the reflection of himself in the universe he's created by natural or general revelation. Or he may be referring to the life of Jesus, special revelation in the coming of Christ. There's a light to humanity in the life of Jesus. So that flowers get their light directly from the sun, only indirectly from Jesus. But if we're to know the light, the true light will get it directly from Jesus, not from the sun. As the psalmist writes, for with you is the fountain of life. In your light, we see light. So life and light are almost universal religious symbols, but in John, they're not just sentimental props. Life and light are essential elements in the Old Testament creation narrative. Go back to the first chapter of the Bible. Everything that came into being did so by God's spoken word. At the creation, darkness was over the face of the deep until God spoke the very first of, act of creation. Let there be light, and then let there be life.
So there's a double meaning. Is he talking about the creation of physical life or the recreation of spiritual life? It appears to be both. A masterpiece of double entendre. Now, friends, there's only time here for the briefest of sketches, and it's only the very beginning of the claims about Jesus. But his haunting specter remains today. Critics haven't been able to obliterate him. Contrary views haven't been able to smother him. And somehow in the deepest recesses of the human heart, and for millions of people in this world, the name of Jesus Christ still brings the concept of hope and the reality that there must be somebody out there who put my two feet on this earth and a reason to give me hope. Jesus later said that. He said, I was born for a reason. No one can say that except in a secondary, derived, or relative way. For you and I didn't exist before we were conceived, except in the hope of our parents, and if we believe in God, in the plan of God. If we say, I was born for a purpose, that's only a secondary or contingent way that depends on another. He, says John, pre-existed the form that was presented in his earthly manifestation, and he purposed his own birth. You and I were named by our parents after we were conceived and born. Before that, we had no name, for we didn't exist. He had a name before he was born, the eternal word. And he chose to change his own name when he came to earth. He took the name Savior, Rescuer. He's the only person in existence as part of the Godhead, the reason for whose existence is in himself. Every other creature looks for the reason of its existence outside of itself. We are all contingent, caused, and finite. God alone is infinite, uncaused, and has the reason for his existence in himself. Now, these are some of the staggering claims about Jesus. Indeed, the claim of Jesus himself, repeatedly. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. The child is born, the son is not born, but given, because the son eternally existed. And this name of Christ has been virtually unique and unparalleled in history as the one who claimed in himself to be the sum and substance of the meaning of the universe. Not just in what he said or in what he did or taught, but in himself. So that if you remove Christ from the Gospels, there's no Gospel message left. He's the central figure of his own message. Listen to the theologian James Stewart. He was the meekest and lowliest of all the sons of men. Yet he spoke of coming on the clouds of heaven with the glory of God. He was so austere that evil spirits and demons cried out in terror at his coming. Yet he was so genial and winsome and approachable that the children loved to play with him and the little ones nestled in his arms. His presence had the innocent gaiety of a village wedding 
and was like the presence of sunshine. No one was half as kind and compassionate to sinners, yet no one spoke such hot, scorching words against sin. A bruised reed he would not break. His whole life was love, yet one occasion it demanded of the Pharisees how they expected to escape the damnation of hell. He was dreamer of dreams and a seer of visions. Yet for sheer stark realism, he has all our self-styled realists soundly beaten. He was the servant of all, washing the disciples' feet. Yet masterfully, he strode into the temple, and the money changers and hucksters fell over one another in their mash rud to get away from the fires they saw blazing in his eyes. He saved others, and yet at the last, himself he did not save. There is nothing, nothing in history like the union of contrasts that confronts us in the gospel. The mystery of Jesus is the mystery of divine personality. Well, friends, you'll have to come back to hear how the word became flesh. And why? to bring us home to God, to forgive our past and give hope for our future. But I end with a story, a real story, told by a friend of a friend of mine, a father taking his son to bed. As the little boy dozed off, his father crept to the door, turned off the light and went downstairs. A moment later, the boy woke with a start. He cried out, Daddy, come here, it's dark, I'm frightened. His father called out from downstairs, don't worry, I'm down here, go to sleep. His son called out again, Dad, I need you up here. It's dark, I'm afraid. So his father tried a new approach. Don't be afraid, God is with you in your bedroom, now go to sleep. Long pause. Dad, I need a God with skin on. John will go on to say that the God who made the universe, God, God, became a human being. And John adds, we know this is true. He made his dwelling among us and we've seen him, we've touched him. A God with skin on. But we must all decide for ourselves whether these claims are worth taking seriously. But they're so stupendous. Surely they must be worth a look over time, not just over a mulled wine and a mince pie. <laughs>